Please join me in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Last week we began a a two-part mini-series, if you want to call it that, on ordinary Christianity. We looked at the ordinary means of grace, and we learned that those ordinary means of grace are the means that, that Christ has appointed to give spiritual nourishment to His people and to grow them in grace. The focus there was on the church as a whole, as the gathered body corporately. But today we will focus on the individual believer. How does the individual believer benefit from these ordinary means of grace? And more to the point, how do they shape us as ordinary believers into an ordinary Christian? As we said last week, I know that this word ordinary is not the word that comes to mind when people think of of what kind of church they want to be a part of. And it's not the word that comes to mind when people think of what they would like to be known for. You imagine at your funeral, yeah, I knew him. He was a very ordinary guy. No one wants that. But let's be clear, ordinary Christianity is indeed extraordinary, but it consists in the ordinary. I remember distinctly when I was growing up, perhaps you do too, that Christian marketing was a lot more like an energy drink commercial. It was full of words like radical and extreme and earth shaker. No one wants to be an ordinary Christian. We want to be an earth shaker. Today, you can almost throw a rock and find some sort of marketing geared towards quote-unquote, going deeper, or how to experience breakthrough, or encounter God through the prophetic. What is plainly evident in the wild popularity of this kind of thinking is that we don't want ordinary. We want to be wowed. We want to be amazed. After all, Jesus said that greater works than these shall you do. I want to do the the greater works. I want to operate in the prophetic. I want to have healing hands. I want to see signs and wonders. I want to be a part of soaking worship. I want to have an ecstatic emotional experience. I don't want ordinary The problem with always seeking the radical and extreme and ecstatic is that these things leave you empty. They might have an appearance of godliness, but they lack power. These kinds of people, these kinds of churches, these kinds of pursuits, they're like clouds without rain. And when these gimmicks and cheap party tricks inevitably fail, people are left hurt and more lost and more confused and feeling more hopeless than they were before. Pursuing these extraordinary ecstatic experiences is often a way of escaping regular, everyday obedience, living the ordinary Christian life. But it's not just the charismania of our day that can lead us down the path of seeking the extraordinary, no, is it? Have you ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? You read of the martyrs, And you think, wow, I'm not even a Christian. These guys gave their all for Christ. They they were beheaded. They were burned at the stake. We honor those men. We honor those who have laid down their life for Christ. No doubt about that. 
people who have given their life to missions and been killed by some, some tribe in a third world country. We honor these kinds of men. These stories are amazing and encouraging and soul-stirring to be sure. But if we're not careful, they can give us this idea of Christianity that's not biblical. We begin to think that there's some sort of elite class of Christian that they are the ones who are called to a radical life. God does indeed call some people to die on the mission field and to be beheaded for the testimony of Christ, to sell all that they have and, and go for, to the nations for Christ. And we're thankful for the way that God chooses to use fallible human beings to accomplish His purpose. But we must not allow these incredible, if not sensational, stories to distract us from what God has called us to do right here, right now. Day in, day out. Maybe He calls you to go to a war-torn third world country to share the gospel, but maybe He calls you to live with that same kind of passion and zeal for Him right where you are. It's easy to have these dreams of being in in ministry or becoming a missionary or doing these incredible exploits for God. We fancy ourselves these incredibly devoted Christians who will happily lose their life for Christ. But you know what's much more difficult is to live for Christ. We could go on and on. But what I hope that we will have seen by the end of our time together is that the Scriptures lay out for us something much more ordinary. It's growth that's slow sanctification that's progressive. It's a relationship with God that consists in consistency, not extremism. A call to be faithful right where you are. As I said, sometimes the hardest thing that you can do is to be faithful right where you are. Even in a circumstance where you're not, that you're not happy with, that you wish that you would change. But this slow, ordinary Christianity, it's one that stands the test of time, my friends. It's the one that helps the Christian finish well. And we know about the Christian life, it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. We want to finish well. So what does the ordinary Christian life look like then? And how does one live the ordinary Christian life? <clears throat> Excuse me. In our time together this morning, I want us to walk through a very familiar passage to answer that question. We're going to see four essential components that make up ordinary Christianity. Hope you're there in Romans. We're going to bounce around again a lot, so you can feel free to remain seated. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to be here and open up the, the scriptures together. Lord, we know that you speak to us directly through your word. So we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would empower the preaching and empower the hearing for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The book of Romans is arguably one of the most important books in the New Testament because of Paul's very thorough 
exposition of justification by faith alone. It's of such importance that the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones devoted 366 sermons across 12 years to the book of Romans. And 10 sermons on these two verses alone, everyone's holding their breath. While I don't intend to replicate that effort, ah, okay, nor do I possess the brilliance of the doctor, it is still worth taking a moment to consider the background of Romans. So that way we can understand what Paul is saying here. I'm sure that you've all heard several sermons on this passage in your lifetime, but if not, it's important that, to know that this chapter, chapter 12, this passage, and specifically this word, therefore, marks a distinct transition in the flow of the letter up to this point. Paul has been laying a very thick and heavy theological foundation upon which the, build, the believer is to build their life. As you know, he writes of our disastrous condition before Christ in chapters 1 through 3, and he does this to then explain that the only way that one can be justified in the eyes of God, chapters 3 through 5, is by faith, by faith alone. Chapters 6 through 7 deal heavily with our new relationship in, uh, with sin in Christ, namely that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And chapter 8 is a beautiful chapter full of uh, the believer's assurance. He lets us know that the Spirit prays for us in our weakness. He lets us know that nothing can separate us from the love of God and that everything that happens to us in our life, God causes it to work out for good. And then in chapters 9 through 11, it teaches us mainly about sovereign election, that all of this has happened because of God's sovereign choosing of us before the foundations of the world. And this is what call, Paul, causes Paul to explode in a doxology. Look at chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. With all of that, all of that weight of all that he has written so far, it all comes to bear on chapter 12, verse 1, especially in this tiny word, therefore. It's a weighty transition. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I urge you, my brothers, because of what God has done for you and how you were completely undeserving of what he's done for you, in response to God's varied and uh, many mercies shown towards you in Christ, this is now how you are to live. Because chapter 12 through the rest of the book is all about Christian living. It's a loving exhortation that Paul intends to give, but he wants us all to know that what is of first and foremost importance is that you cannot obey this exhortation without having experienced the mercies of God. That's what he says. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. What does that tell us? Is that the only way to live the Christian life is through Christ. The only way to be a Christian is to be in 
Christ to have been transformed by the Spirit of the living God. The only way that this passage makes any sense to us is that we understand the mercy of God, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that no one does good, no one is righteous, that we were born in iniquity, and that we pursue sin with all of our being because we're sinners. But even though that's true, that the Father sent His Son for us to live a perfect and blameless life, die the death that we deserved, and live again so that we could be justified by faith in His finished work. It's faith in that, believing that, faith in that, that empowers us to now live the Christian life. Why is that important to say? Because without a proper understanding of what motivates the Christian's obedience, we will produce and become Pharisees. In other words, unregenerate people who are really good at following the rules, who are really good at external righteousness. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is one lived in response to the mercies of God. So this is the first essential component of the ordinary Christian life, is meditating on the mercies of God. Not in order, we don't do this in order to earn God's mercy, but because of God's mercy. So we know that Paul is now transitioning to speak of Christian obedience for the rest of this letter. But it's critical that we understand that this obedience must be given in response and fueled by the mercies of God. Friends, have you experienced the mercy of God for yourself? Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? If so, then this is for you. And if not, the invitation is believe upon Christ today. And this can be yours. The mercies of God are not a one-time experience, though. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses the plural? He doesn't say because of the mercy of God, but the mercies of God. What does that mean? That His mercies are many and varied. We experience His mercy every single day. They are all around us. You know the passage from Lamentations 3 quite well. I know you do. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. They're new every morning. An essential component then of living the ordinary Christian life is meditating upon these many and varied mercies of God. Church, if the Scriptures tell us that the, His mercies never come to an end, then neither should our meditating and reflecting upon the mercies of God ever end. That's something that we will do for the rest of our life. And if it's true that His mercies are new every morning, what should you and I do every single morning? If not, meditate upon the new morning mercies of God. No matter what you're going through, if you're in a storm in life or easy sailing, that is something that you can and even further, that you must do. Because in every season of your life, God commands our obedience. Did we know that, right? That even when we're suffering, that God has commanded our obedience in every area, every season of our lives, God is to be obeyed. But how do we feel that obedience without it just being cold, dead, and religion? 
How do we do that when we're not feeling it? We meditate upon the mercies of God. We remember the wrath that we were under before, the, uh, before He saved us. We remember that He elected us into salvation before the foundation of the world. We remember Christ given for us. And here is when the ordinary means of grace come into play. On a day like today where we come to the Lord's table, we remember Christ's body given and His blood spilled. And we find strength anew. I love the passage that we quoted from Lamentations. Lamentations, you, you would, if you've never read it, you would be surprised by how depressing that book is. It is a lament. It's called Lamentations. It's lamenting. It's a person lamenting Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem. It's a very sad, very dark book because the person is recounting the judgment of God that God poured out on his people the way that he kept prophesying through his prophets that he was going to do. And shortly before that passage in chapter 3, the writer writes things like, I am the man who has seen affliction, and surely against me he turns his hand again and again, and he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken all my bones. Have you ever been in a dark place in your life where it felt that way? That God was against you? So did this guy. But there's a glimmer of sunlight there in verse 21 of chapter 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Do you see what happened there? But this I call to mind. The writer doesn't say, but then I woke up one day and everything was better, so then I was happy again. He's in the middle of the wake of tragedy and turmoil and destruction and the judgment of God. And in the middle of that, he says, but I'm going to remind myself of something. I need to bring this to mind. You know what we call this? This is called preaching to yourself. Preaching to yourself. I remember the steadfast love of the Lord. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. What changed? He meditated on the mercies of God. He reminded himself that even in the wake of utter ruin, God is still faithful. He is still merciful. And in fact, His mercies never come to an end. Do you see then that our situations never dictate the character and nature of God? We always bring our feelings and our emotions that are real and that are powerful and can weigh us down. We bring them into submission to God. How? By meditating on God's mercy. By remembering how good He is. Think back to when God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming His own holy name to Moses. This is one of the most clear revelations of God, by God, to us. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
That's the God we serve. So ultimately, meditating upon the mercies of God is meditating upon God himself. He has told us this is his nature. That he is merciful and gracious. He's telling us about himself and the first thing that he says is he's merciful. Meditating on the many and varied mercies of God towards us is an essential component of the ordinary Christian life because you can do this in any and every season of your life. A housewife can do this. A scholar can do this. A missionary can do this. Literally any Christian can do this because every Christian has come to taste and know the mercies of God. And meditating on these mercies inevitably leads us to surrender. This is the second essential component. It is live all of life unto God. He goes on to say, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's loving exhortation to all believers is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The idea that he wants us to have in mind here is that of giving yourself over to God. You remember, a sacrifice during this time, they would have known it to be an animal being slaughtered and put on an altar and burned. That's what they would have in mind as a sacrifice. So they might think, well, how can I do that? How can I be like that animal and be living? How can I be a living sacrifice? How does that, those things seem to be against one another? But what he's saying is give yourself to God. You live all of life unto God. The word body here, it's a Hebraism. It was a way of referring to not just the physical body, not just the mind or the heart. But you are the entirety of who you are, yourself. As we said in the introduction, it can be much easier to think of dying for Christ than to actually live for Christ. But this is the ordinary Christian life. It's one where we live unto Christ because we live through Christ. This too is something that all Christians can do not just can, but must do, no matter where they are in life. It's not just for ministers. This is not just for some higher elite level of Christian living where they live all of life unto Christ and the rest of us, we're good with just going to church on Sunday. That's all that God really asks of us. Well, here we have it. He's writing this letter to a church, to ordinary Christians, by the way, Jews and Gentiles, and what is he telling them? Live all of your life unto God. Be a living sacrifice. Why? Because of the mercies of God. Because of how much he has done for you. Have you considered this before? That all of your life, the entirety of who you are, is to be lived unto Christ. Again, not just when you're at church or praying or reading your Bible there's not a part of your life that's spiritual and then the other part of your life that you know you kind of get to determine how things work out. There is no such thing in Christianity as living that sort of segmented life. 
It is all of life unto God. I'd like to be very practical here. Perhaps you're wondering how to live unto Christ. As, how, how would a mechanic do that? How would a farmer or an office worker or a probation officer, how, how can someone who works just a normal job live unto Christ and be a living sacrifice? And what does that even look like? Well, aren't you glad that we have the Bible that will tell us? Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Listen to this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Wow. The word here for heartily is the same word that's most often translated as soul. So he's saying whatever you do, do it with all that you are. Put your heart into it. Give it some elbow grease. You're not working for man. You're working unto the Lord. Can you imagine how much that would change your work ethic? How much that would change your business practices if you keep in mind, I work for God. I work unto the Lord. I'm going to answer to the Lord. And I'm not working for a paycheck. The text says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. So you don't do a really good job so that you can get paid $70,000 a year, $40,000 a year, however much you make. That's not why you work really hard or so that your name can be on the wall as employee of the month. You work really hard at your job because the Lord is who you're serving. That is who you work for. It's amazing. There's a story about Martin Luther that he was approached by a shoemaker one day who was asking him, you know, how, how can I live my life unto the glory of God? How can I glorify God? I'm just, I'm just a man. Martin Luther asked him, what, what do you do now? What's your profession? He said, I'm a shoemaker. Martin Luther's response was awesome. Make good shoes. Wow. Make good shoes. How do you glorify God as a shoemaker? You make good shoes. You don't need to put crosses on all of them. You make really good shoes. How, how, do you, how can you be a really good home builder? Not by putting crosses on all the houses, but by making good homes and having good business practices. How, how can you do whatever it is that you do? You do a good job. You go to work with that mentality, I need to make a good shoe because I work unto the Lord. That's what you do. My friends, that is living all of life unto the glory of God. What about in your marriage? Well, Ephesians 5 has plenty to say to us, doesn't it? Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. To both husband and wife, the command involves a God-centered perspective in approaching your marriage. You ever thought of your marriage that way? As a husband, do I love my wife like Christ loved the church? Do I love her that way? As a wife, am, am I submitting to the, the spiritual leadership of my husband as unto the Lord? Is that what really marks my life? Ultimately, whatever situation you're in, you can live all of life unto God by applying 1 Corinthians 10.31 to literally everything that you do. 
I love what Paul says. He's not even talking about just life in general. He's talking about eating. He says, so whatever, whether you eat or drink, and then he throws in, you know what? Or, or whatever you do. Or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The ordinary Christian life consists in washing dishes unto the glory of God. Taking a vacation with your family unto the glory of God. Going to get ice cream with the kids unto the glory of God. Working as a janitor unto the glory of God. Dying in the mission field unto the glory of God. The ordinary Christian life is seen in living all of life unto Christ, seeing as we live through Christ. We do this by submitting every aspect of our lives to Him. That there's not a corner of our life that His Lordship does not touch. There's not a corner of your thought life that he is not proclaiming Lord over. There is nothing in your life, whatever you do, whatever you say, wherever you live, that you are doing it the way, striving to do it, the way that Christ would have you do it. How can you be a church member unto the glory of God? Well, isn't it funny that the rest of chapter 12 goes on to answer that question? The rest of chapter 12 has a big section about how to be a church member. You know what it is? Serving with the gift that God has given you. How can I be a living sacrifice? That's how. It doesn't mean abandoning all of my life to go and enter full-time ministry. It means whatever God's gift is in me, I use it in the church. This life we are called to is one where our hearts and minds are facing Godward and we have a God-centered perspective about everything in our life, whether it's big or small. That there's nothing too small, nothing too big in our life that we don't bring to God and submit to His Lordship. It's that simple and that difficult. That's why we cannot do it without meditating on the mercies of God. And it doesn't come naturally to us, does it? We do not have the tendency to think of mowing the lawn as an act of worship unto God. We're not inclined to think of, of living all of life unto the glory of God. And that's why we need this third essential component of the ordinary Christian life. What is it? Be transformed by God. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Can I just say, isn't it amazing that Paul is telling you this is a command, it's an imperative, and he's commanding you to be transformed? On one level, it's like, okay, Paul, how do I do that? Just wake up one day and just be transformed one day? There are many commentators who say that the language being used here of conformed and transformed indicates an, an outward conformity and then an inward transformation. Well, what does that mean? Remember, Paul is writing to Christians. These are people who have been transformed by the Spirit of God, who have been renewed, who have been regenerated. Their sins have been forgiven. They are Christians. They are believers. And to believers, he's telling them, do not be outwardly conformed to the way that the world does things. What does that mean? That you can be a Christian and live in a way that would please the world more than God. God doesn't say, well, you're a Christian now, so really just anything you want to do, figure it out, kiddo. Go ahead. 
there is a way that we can live that is not pleasing to God, that's not, as Paul will say in other letters, that is not in a manner worthy of our calling. We can live in such a way that grieves the Spirit of God. And how do we do that? Instead of meditating on God's mercies, we meditate on our own desires. Instead of living all of life unto God, we live some of life, maybe even most of our life unto God. But there are parts of my life, you know, that the Bible doesn't really talk about that, you know? So I'm just going to kind of lean on the world's wisdom. Friend, I would commend to you all Psalm chapter 1, the very first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And that's the kind of wisdom that Paul is applying here. Don't be conformed to the world. The way that the world goes to work, that the way that the world operates in their marriage, the way that the world thinks about finances, the way that the world thinks about the career, the way that the world thinks about God, the church, scripture, obedience, the way that the world thinks about it, don't be conformed to that. And it's interesting, the word world here is it's the Greek aeon. It's the word that's often translated as age. In other words, to refer to the spirit of the age, the way that the culture is going, the way that society is going. And my friends, that would look different in America than it would in Bangladesh, right? That, that looks different in 2022 than it would in the 1500s. And so whatever the cultural norm is, whatever the societal norm is, Paul is saying don't be conformed to that. Why? Because you have the mercies of God to think about. Instead, you are to be transformed. Don't live the way that they live. You are to live different. You're to be transformed. And that's for ordinary Christians. I'm going to keep pounding this drum. Christians are to be markedly different. Not just missionaries. Not just the evangelists. Not just the ministers. But everyday ordinary Christians. To be sure, ordinary Christianity looks like extremism to the world. It looks to the world to be extremist. It will look like fundamentalism. It will look like religiosity, and you're probably going to be called a Pharisee because you care about obeying God. But rest assured, ordinary Christianity is living uh, your life patterned according to the Word of God. But don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' words. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, okay, the words of God, everyone then who hears these words of mine, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You want to be wise? What does the Bible say? And do it. You, you want to have your life built on an unshakable foundation where no matter what comes across your life, you can stand firm? Build your life according to what this book says. Every part of your life. Not some of your life, not just the part that you segment for spirituality. Your whole life. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your, guess what it is, word. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Do you hear the clarity with which the Lord speaks through his word to tell us that there is safety in his word? There is safety here. 
He has spoken to us through his chosen instruments, and he has given us these words to guard our lives. Friends, isn't that the kindness of God? That he hasn't said, go figure it out on your own, or go and try to pursue, maybe you'll hear from God, maybe you'll hear from me one day or not. What he's done is given us a book full of his words. He said, you want to hear from me? Open this. As I said last week, we have 66 books full of words from God. Are you lost? Are you confused? Do you not know what to do in your life? Do you feel far from God? On and on we could go. What do you do? You open the book. You open the book. And you apply what it says. So then the command here from the Apostle Paul to not conform yourself to the pattern of this present culture involves being transformed according to what God says. The world cares about making a bunch of money and then making more money. The world cares about the primacy of your own personal pursuits and ambitions. The world cares about all the things that are diametrically opposed to what God calls us to be. But an ordinary Christian cannot live the ordinary Christian life while patterning their lives after the world or loving the things of the world. Again, don't take my word for it. 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're not supposed to judge Christians. John tells us, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, listen to this, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Some people spend their whole life building a kingdom that perishes. Some people spend their whole life building wealth that perishes. God has called us to something better. The Christian is called instead to be transformed. And how do we do that? By renewing our mind. I know, talking about the mind, it's not popular today. You speak of doctrine, you speak of engaging the mind. People think you're a Pharisee or you're involved in cold, dead religion. But the scriptures are replete with the importance of engaging the mind. After all, God gave you a brain. Did you know that? God gave you a brain. And why did he do that? So that you would know him. So that you would learn about him. So that you can engage it and think about him. But we have to learn to think differently. Friends, this teaches us so much about the importance of what you think. This teaches us so much about the importance of the mind and your thought life. That your mind, the way you think, controls your actions. In order to be transformed, to live differently and act differently, your brain has to change. Can we say for the thousandth time this morning, this is not just for missionaries or evangelists or ministers. This is for the ordinary Christian. An ordinary Christian is one who thinks biblically, not just John MacArthur. Not just other theologians. An ordinary Christian is the one who looks to the scriptures for wisdom to guide their life. Church, that means you and me. 
It is within our grasp that we can learn to think with biblical wisdom. In fact, it's not just that we can. Paul issues a command to do so. To be transformed. Renew your mind. Don't just pick up a few new habits or get really fired up for a second and then fizzle out. Radical transformation is built on a bunch of small little changes built over time. It is the cumulative effect of day by day, day in, day out, choosing to renew the mind, choosing to go to the Scriptures, choosing instead of picking up my phone and looking at social media or the weather or what are the Democrats doing today, that instead of doing that, the first thing that I do is I turn here and I say I must renew my mind because I am a fleshly man. I am a sinful man. I need to learn to think the thoughts of God. How can I do that? Not by prophesying on the side of a mountain after fasting for 90 days. I do that by putting my brain here and engaging my mind and looking at the scriptures and digging in them and eating and thinking about it and meditating about it. Then I learn to think the thoughts of God. You don't become God. But you learn to think the way that he does. How does it happen? Listen to this amazing verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Yes, it is a bunch of... Small changes day in, day out. But all of that is for naught if it is not the Spirit of God empowering those decisions, empowering those changes. As you behold the glory of the Lord in your everyday life, whether washing the dishes or cleaning your yard or on your knees in prayer, you are being transformed into the image of Christ. Slowly, definitely. Progressively, absolutely. But surely, because this doesn't come from you, but from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do you make that text personal? The woman who's just a housewife, quote-unquote, little do you know that she's being transformed into the image of Christ. That truck driver that you cut off real angrily on the loop, little do you know that he is beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. That everyday, ordinary, no-named person that you pass by all the time, little do you know that the Spirit of God is empowering them to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God does this extraordinary work when His people utilize the ordinary means of grace. Day in, day out, an ordinary Christian wakes up on an ordinary day sets their heart to read the Word and apply the Word, to pray to the Lord and trust the Lord, and God slowly but surely performs this miraculous work in their hearts, and they know not how. The last essential element, essential component, is to be conformed to the will of God. Paul goes on to say that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, isn't everyone always wanting to know what the will of God for their life is? I bet you we could go to the Christian bookstore right now, close our eyes, and find a book about how to know the will of God for your life. We turn everywhere except for where we can find it. 
The scriptures tell us this is the will of God for your life. Do you know what it is? Your sanctification. Well, I don't really like that. That means I got to stop sinning. That means I got to give this up. I don't know about that. Let me go read from a, a prophet so that they can tell me what the will of God is. Maybe it'll be something a little bit nicer, like God wants me to ball outrageous. Like God wants me to stop talking to that person because they're mean to me. No, the will of God for your life in every situation is your sanctification, that you be conformed to the image of Christ. So as you learn to think biblically, you will learn to discern what is pleasing to God in every decision that you have to make. Friends, being very practical here, I mean every decision that you make, whether it's at work, how to spend your money, whether to do this, whether to go here, whether to do that, you will learn to think about what is going to be pleasing to God here. And you don't need to go anywhere else except for right here, being transformed. You might not be able to pull out a verse and say, this verse here says this, but you learn to think with the whole weight of what the biblical wisdom would dictate here of what the scriptures tell us about the nature and character of God. You learn how to think that way. So instead of seeking a sign, instead of seeking something else, we can turn to the scriptures every day. Isn't this amazing that this is available to you and I? This isn't just for the Apostle Paul or for some amazing super Christian. This is for you and for me that we can meditate upon the mercies of God and be transformed. And that we can learn to think about the will of God. We can learn to think that way. Wouldn't it be great to know the will of God in every part of our life? You start by conforming your life to the will of God. Day by day. Every day. Little by little. It doesn't happen overnight. There's not a night of prophetic impartation where we can download this into your soul like it's from the cloud. It doesn't happen that way. Growth in this does not happen overnight. It's slow, but it's the cumulative effect of applying these things to your life every day, day in, day out. When you feel it, when you don't, God uses that to shape you by his spirit. Ordinary Christianity requires, requires us faithfully and consistently doing the ordinary things, trusting that God does extraordinary things through ordinary means. Let's stand.